More than 20% of people in faith communities are survivors of childhood sexual abuse. But sadly, churches are often the last place a victim of abuse can find help and healing. I'm Kelly Downing, and my dream is a church where survivors like me and so many others can feel safe, be heard, and find healing. Until that happens, this is Survivor Sanctuary, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse who are navigating the road to healing and for anyone who wants to be a part of the major heart renovation the church needs so that our faith communities can truly become sanctuaries for survivors. Hey, welcome to another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. This is Kelly, and I hope you're having a fantastic day wherever you are. If you are listening in the car on your commute, as I like to do whenever I listen to podcasts, I'm usually driving the crazy Miami commute. But whether you're doing that, cleaning the house, or just relaxing and enjoying a podcast the way you like to, I'm happy that we can come together again this week and hang out and support each other. And speaking of supporting each other, there is a fantastic way that you can support other survivors and that you can be supported yourself, and that is to join the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. It's a private group, so you can talk about whatever you want, you can share your survivor stories, which people do, and uh, post different words of encouragement, or if you need words of encouragement, you can ask for them on the Survivor Sanctuary page as well. So join us there, just search Survivor Sanctuary on Facebook and ask to join because it is a private group and then I will approve you, I promise, and you can be a part of the Survivor Sanctuary community. We are a growing community, still small but mighty, and I appreciate every single person that takes the time to post and to join the group because I feel like one thing that we definitely need as survivors and if you are a survivor, you will definitely understand that is community. It is so difficult to heal when you're not in community. And I think that for a lot of us, we have this tendency to kind of be loners. And at least that's me. I'm definitely one of those people who's like, ah, I don't need to join like a group to do X, Y, Z. I don't need to go to a gym. I'll work out on my own. I don't need to, you know, I always have a reason why it would be so much better to do it by myself. But honestly, it is amazing the healing that is done when we're in community with each other and when we're supporting each other. And it's it's awesome to have people to just chat with every day and you know they're going to get what you're going through and what you're talking about nine times out of ten, which is pretty awesome, especially when you're talking about Facebook where people can be pretty polarizing. But I know that when it comes to a group like Survivor Sanctuary, I think we're all pretty much on the same page or a very similar one. So it's a really good community and I'm having a great time getting to know everybody. And I just want to encourage you, if you haven't joined the group yet, that you can do that. Well, I'm so excited about the guest that I have today. And I had a chance to meet her last week at the Courage Conference, and it was a very brief meeting. We actually got to have dinner together, which was nice, and I wish that we'd had more time to talk, but I knew when I heard Katie's story, and I actually heard it or read about it on Facebook, I knew that I needed to have her on the podcast. Her story is definitely 
A story so many of us can relate to, but Katie is such a courageous person, and I'm excited for you to hear from Katie and find out why, and I think that you're definitely going to share that opinion. And we had such a great time chatting, and Katie had so much wisdom to offer that we've actually split up this interview with Katie into two parts, so you'll have to come back next week for part two of the interview with Katie. But for now, we are going to get into our chat with a fellow survivor and advocate, Katie Trout. Katie, it is so good to have you on the podcast today. I want to thank you so much for joining me. No, thank you so much for having me on. Now, Katie and I met um, in person for the first time at the Courage Conference, which was uh, last weekend. I, I feel like time is flying, so I, I, it feels like it was six months ago, and it also feels like it was 30 seconds ago, but it was great seeing you there and being able to put an in-person face to your Twitter profile. I know. those are. I think those are always the best meetings when you finally get to meet somebody after talking for months online. Yeah, it was kind of a surreal experience. I actually got a few people wrong, though. Um, I asked a, a couple of people like, oh, hey, are you so-and-so? And they're like, just blank stares like, no, but I was like, sorry. So then I started getting out my phone and like really looking at the profiles before I approached anyone. I had a few of those moments, too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then I don't feel so bad. It's one lady. I'm like, hey, are you so-and-so? She's like, no, just like a deer in headlights. She's like, do you? have problems or like, sorry. No, not at all. Yeah, no, not not even a little bit. Um, anyway, Katie, I have been following your story on Twitter and on Facebook and in uh, all the social media. And I really wanted to share your story or have you share your story with our listeners. So would you do that for us today? Definitely. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, well, I was born and raised in Charlotte, North Carolina. And my family was one of those who was there every time the doors were open, you know, several times on Sunday and Wednesdays and often more days during the week. But it was when I was growing up, probably before middle school, when we still got sent to, quote, children's church, that I saw the man who would later on abuse me when I turned 15. And he was very charismatic, um, always around people made people laugh. He was a great actor, um, which is what his role was during that time. And a little bit of time passed once we, I stopped going to that. Um, and it was around when I was age 15 that I decided to join the church's drama group. Um, I was looking for a way to get better plugged in outside of like a youth group setting and decided to join that in hopes of maybe connecting with you know, some more people and having something to do that I felt was important. And he was, I believe, 35 at the time. And as we all know, with the grooming process, you don't really know what's happening, of course, but he started paying more attention to me. And at the time, as a teenager, I just remember being so incredibly lonely and kind of misunderstood um, I was always a bit more mature than most people my age, which made me often feel a little bit different. And he just offered somebody to talk to and acted like he was genuinely interested in what my story was and things I wanted to do. And he began praying on that. And it was that summer when I was 15 that he 
one day during rehearsals just sat down next to me and out of the blue just said, would you be my secret girlfriend? Wow. And I just remember being like so taken aback at that even coming out of his mouth. I didn't really have a response, but with growing up in the church, you know, you're taught that you do what adults say. And, you know, he encouraged me to start emailing him. And, oh, I should have mentioned, by the way, that he was a church employee. Um, he was their church's graphic designer for several years. And it just started growing from there. Like, we started emailing regularly. He asked me to start talking to him on old school instant messenger. And I guess the relationship, or I thought was a friendship, just started to deepen before at one point it had gone from like those kind of touches where you don't know if if it was accidental or not when you start really questioning whether you're the crazy one um when things happen and at some point the abuse obviously took a sexual turn and started asking me to go on like trips outside of church with him and he would do things like asking or emailing ahead of time what will your parents think if I take you home on a Wednesday so all of this was definitely planned every time he wanted to see me and it was it happened everywhere in the church outside of the church so I was constantly living in this state of hypervigilance which became totally exhausting but when i think when you're in the abuse and also young and naive you don't attribute that that loneliness or depression to what's actually going on you know i naively thought everything was great you're like oh someone's here paying attention to me you know and there's that kind of desperate feeling that you think is finally getting filled by this man who you think was your friend and this went on for 4 years many, many times from age 15 to right before I turned 19. And it got very bad. The depression, which, like I said, I wouldn't have attributed to him at that time, got really bad, started having suicidal thoughts. And it was right before I turned 19 when the worst case of abuse occurred. And I was almost positive he had planned on raping me that last time um, where I just said to myself like I can't do this anymore I was so terrified that night it happened that I actually went and hid from him after he left and was just like hoping and praying that he wasn't going to find where I had gone in the church and I just went back that weekend to school when I was I had gone to college at that point and went and told some friends and a few months later after I I got some counseling over that summer when I went back home where I decided to come forward and tell my parents. Can I ask, like, what what specifically was it that made you decide that you needed to tell someone? I call it a Holy Spirit moment, which coming from a person right from me right now where I don't participate in organized church, I just remember getting done with a counseling session with my therapist at that time and we got up to the front desk and it was like some sort of lightning bolt hit and I said I told her like I have to tell my parents I was about to go back to school and I just didn't want to go back dealing with this baggage anymore so I think they came in just a few days later after that and in probably one of the scariest moments of my life I told them that he had been molesting me for four years and I'll just never forget the looks on my parents' faces and kind of the grief that came from my mom at that point, just in utter shock 
that this man who we had trusted and had been to our house for different parties and stuff had been doing this behind their backs to their daughter. They immediately called the church and and what I've learned now was not the right order of things in reporting. Um, they put us in touch with one of the pastors who was on call who went and talked to a couple of the elders at the church. And they, over the next week, actually went to his house two times to confront him. He denied it, of course. He wasn't saying too much at that point. But I was told that at one point, one of the elders got up in his face and was talking very firmly at him that he finally admitted to it. And it was at that point that they went and talked to um, the police to report it. So looking back, obviously, I know that it should have gone to police to handle that process before the church tried to intervene as the detectives. But um, and then undoubtedly, the worst year of my life was when it got sent to the police department, and then the there a, a detective got involved. You know, you have to give a deposition, which basically you outline every single assault in detail for them. And that's just, I understand why survivors don't report because it's brutal and it's raw and you're sharing all these heavy details with people you probably are never even going to see in person. <laughs> And it just kind of went from there. Um, he went and checked himself into the hospital for, quote, depression the day after that, you know, which I'm sure was to garner support for himself as the victim. And over the next few months, uh, they were able, they charged him with one count of indecent liberties with a minor. Because in North Carolina, when you turn 16, everything becomes consensual at that point. So regardless of his position of power as an employee and an adult, like none of that mattered with the other 99 times that he had abused me. So that was a lot to take, but essentially, you know, all of your abuse was thrown away in a court and you couldn't do anything about it. So it was about a year later when I was navigating basically the whole legal process by myself and talking to the district attorneys and police and figuring out how that was all going to work when we did go to court a year later and he pled guilty to the one count they were able to charge him with. So that got him a few months on probation and just a little bit of restitution that he paid back to my parents and was put on the North Carolina sex offender registry. So definitely not what I had hoped for. Yeah, I was I was just going to ask, how did you feel about the result of coming forward and and telling people what happened? Honestly, it's mixed sometimes. Um, The response I got from many people afterwards has really made me question whether it was worth it. Um, I know I did the right thing in coming forward because he was starting to pay attention to some girls that were younger than me, but the lack of support I received has made it very difficult. Lack of response from my parents who frankly just did not know what to do at that point to help me. Um, Church leadership definitely did not respond in the right way. And it just makes you wonder, like, was the whole fight even worth it? Right. You go through all the, you go through all the abuse and that's horrible. And then 
you finally are like, I need to speak out. I need to come forward. And then it seems like, you know, the process of reporting and dealing with, you know, the fallout from that can be even more traumatizing in a lot of cases. And I feel like that sounds like what you're saying was your experience. Oh, definitely. I think I'd be a lot further along in my healing at this point if I had received better support after that. How how did the church treat you when you you reported, you were talking to detectives, they the case was, you know, taken by the district attorney? How how did the church, like both leadership and just people that you knew from the church, how did they respond? Um so church leadership did not do anything, honestly, on my behalf. They they never offered any counseling support to me, despite him being on staff. I think they even had a counseling center in the church at that time, which they easily could have offered resources to me. Wow. Yeah. So I went so many years without any sort of therapy, which has slowed things down in my recovery. And they talked my parents out of filing a civil lawsuit against them, which I didn't un- obviously understand at the time, but realize what a huge impact that was later on in limiting what we were able to do. And the congregation was never informed in order for other potential victims to come forward. And I, I do question whether there were others. I know from a good friend of mine, he was actually trying to groom her before he met me. So he was definitely there for a specific reason. And no one, no church leaders have ever checked in on me or asked how I was doing. I never got asked, hey, how can we pray for you when I would go home from college on weekends and go to church? No one ever followed up with me or any of that. Yeah. And nothing. And that's so they talked to your parents out of filing a civil suit and they didn't offer you counseling, even though they had a counseling center there. Like that, that seems crazy to me. Especially when it's a church you grew up in. You expect that to be the one place that's going to be behind you. Exactly. How did you feel about, at the time, how did you feel about the fact that they didn't inform the congregation of what he had done? I've never been able to wrap my brain around like why they didn't do it. Um, I don't know if it was just ignorance on leadership's part with knowing how to properly respond to abuse at that time, or if it definitely just was more intentional in trying to protect the institution because they had a lot at stake. They're a big church with a lot of money and a lot of members, and there's a lot that they could lose. If stories like that got out at the time, I I didn't even consider that they should have taken a different approach. Um, I was just trying to get through that whole year between when I came forward and then the court date that I just trusted that the people who were in charge of it were handling it the right way. It wasn't until just a few years ago, honestly, that I started questioning the response or the non-responses from the church that I realized how badly they had handled it. Right. And I think, I mean, I don't want to say that's common. It's sad. But I, I feel like that when we're first, you come forward and you're reporting and you're in that state of like shock and, and brokenness and you're dealing with so much already. It's like, 
it almost feels good to just trust that other people are doing the right thing and that they care. And a lot of times people act like and maybe genuinely do care. But um, I was curious because it seems like we kind of figure out after the fact a lot of times that things are completely mishandled. You know, I almost think that we're kind of clouded by all the th- the stuff we're dealing with, you know, in the middle of reporting and all that. Oh, I, I totally agree. Um, I didn't even know, I think it was age 20, that what a civil lawsuit was or what that meant for me in reclaiming damages or that it could have been paying for my therapy for all these years. I had no idea. You know, you just try to get through it day by day at that point. So you were you were an adult at this point, but they you said they talked your parents out of filing a civil suit. Was it ever something that was presented to you or was it just to your parents? It was just to my parents. I never heard directly from the elders who were handling my case. And this was your church. Yeah. And I I find out I found out just recently this year that I think the main group of elders at the church wasn't even ever fully involved in the case. Just a few of them said, well, we'll handle this. There's a case going on with a young woman, but it's being handled. So that never even gave other church leadership the opportunity to say, no, I don't like the way you're handling this. Maybe we should be doing more to help her and her family. It feels like almost like they're just happy to have somebody else dealing with it and that they don't have to. Yeah. It's better just to keep your head in the sand and then you don't have to do anything. So once he was convicted, was he convicted or did was it a plea deal or? So he pled to the one count of indecent liberties with a minor. So he just had to serve a few months probation. Probation. I think he paid my parents a whole $1,366 in restitution, and he has been a registered sex offender since 2005. You were, at this point, you were over 18. So why was it your parents that received restitution? Um, He had to pay for the counseling I'd had up until that point, and I think for some of my depression medication. So I had only been going to therapy for a few months, so there wasn't that many charges that added up for him to pay anything to us substantially. That's what I would have had to do with the civil suit, which was never an option. <laughs> yeah, because it wasn't even, I mean, it wasn't presented to you. And I, it almost seems like they want to tell as few people as possible about that, because honestly, the point is to keep people from suing. So. Oh, 100%. So he is convicted and put on probation. What happened with you following that? I just tried to go back to a normal life, if we can even call it that. Um, I threw myself into school and I said, well, if I want to not feel all this and I don't want to think about this, I'm just going to study a lot and get really good grades. So I did that for junior and senior year of college and just tried to deal with it as best as I could. It was incredibly lonely looking back at it now. I really, I had nobody at that point to talk to or reach out to or any friends who had been through the same thing. You know, I was still living in such a state of shame where you don't talk about it to anyone that there obviously wasn't anyone I could reach out to for that. So I I graduated, I moved back home for a few months and kind of just put it in a box on the shelf, if you will. Like, I got to get on with life. 
you know, a bunch of, some of us, at least for myself, you're like, oh, I'm fine. I'm healed. And life can go on. But we all know that doesn't happen. <laughs> and probably about five or six years ago, a friend was like, I think you need to start, you need to go start seeing a trauma therapist. And, you know, she said it out of love and concern. And I think just because of that, the way she approached it, I was, I was open to it and got in with a great trauma counselor who has been totally instrumental in me being able to start dealing with so many years of not having anybody and trying to dig out of all of this mess. Wow. What a great friend. If I can just interject that, like, I can't even imagine somebody with the wisdom to to just see what you've gone through and how you're doing, even if you think you're fine and to have the wisdom to say, uh, I think you should go see a trauma therapist. Like that is probably something that the leadership of the church should have said to you and to your parents, like the second they found out. Oh, I totally agree. The contrast between how my friend showed love and concern compared to how the church reacted and didn't do anything is like night and day. Right. And that's really depressing if I can just, if I can just say that. It is. And I, you know, we're quite a few years past when all of this has happened and it still hurts to know how little I meant to this place I grew up in with these people who claim to be preaching about a God who cares for those who have been wounded and I haven't been shown any of that. And there's still a lot of hurt and anger wrapped up with that. Right. And that's understandable um, because, I mean, like you said, you grew up there. Even if you, though, like, even if you had been there for five minutes and somebody from that church had violated you in that way, the response obviously needed to be so, so different from what it was. Yes. And I have, I've made an effort over the last three or four years in trying to talk to leadership at the church about my story and the bad response in hopes that they will better understand like the opportunities they have to do things differently now and to use their huge resources to be helping so many survivors who, you know, they're preaching at every Sunday who are sitting in the pews right in front of them. And unfortunately, I haven't gotten very far with that. And at this point, I'm not saying I've given up, but I think my better my time is better spent with churches who are at least somewhat receptive to caring better for those who have been greatly hurt. And I just keep trying to make people aware at the church just through trying to teach them about abuse and what it looks like and why survivors kind of react or think the way they do after the abuse in hopes that maybe the members of the church will spur on that change rather than going through leadership who isn't interested at this time. Right. And it seems like you just get to that point, like you said, that your time is better spent elsewhere, that you just get to a point where you realize these people aren't going to do anything and they don't care. Like they don't want to open their eyes. You know, it's, it's easier for them to not. And it's easier for them. Honestly, it's easier for a church if nobody ever says anything about the fact that they were abused, especially if they were abused by someone on staff at the church or someone who volunteered at the church. 
And that's sad. It just is. Yeah. And we have so much work to do in, in educating leadership and offering help for those we know who've been hurt or even those who are just, you know, starting to come to terms with realizing what happened to them. Right. And it takes a while. You know, I feel like, you know, what you said earlier about you just tell yourself that you're fine. And I mean, for a lot of us, we believe that we're fine. You know, everything's okay. And I, I dealt with this and it's over and I move on. And then you suddenly start seeing all of the ways that that trauma has really deeply affected you and your entire life. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been with my trauma therapist now almost five years and there are still waves of hurt that come with realizing more layers of what happened. You know, it's not just a, well, these are the five things that happened to me. It's, it's learning more as you delve into the web of the trauma you experienced. Yeah. There are a lot of, you know, a lot of layers and then it's, it's the betrayal, not only of the abuser, but then it's the betrayal of every single person who could have done something and could have supported you and could have made your journey so much easier and your burden so much lighter that didn't do that. Yeah. And that's where a lot of the pain I still have comes from. You know, I joke that, you know, I could have a full page list of people who were probably suspicious of the amount of time he spent with me and the fact that he was always interacting with me alone, who didn't have the courage to speak up that you're like, much of my abuse but could have been prevented if you had just said something. And it's almost like, you know, people will see and they immediately jump to okay, I must be wrong. I must be mistaken. I'm sure it's nothing. You know, nobody would do anything bad. And that's a huge, huge problem in our churches is people seeing things. And I I hate it, but I can see even in my own life where I've seen things and been like, something is off there. Something's not right. And I haven't said anything. And then later on, you know, we'll find out. But that is a huge, huge problem. Like we don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to upset anybody. It seems like you know, we just, everybody wants to be nice to everyone and get along and not make any waves. And we end up hurting people that way. We do. And we've got to do a better job of empowering people to come forward when they have, you know, gut feelings that something is off or they have concerns. And I think a lot of that has to do with just making people in the church more comfortable with talking about abuse. I never heard it. I think even the word abuse mentioned in the whole time I was at the church there. Oh my goodness, I can so relate to that. Um, the fact, you know, that we're in church from the time we're embryos and we never hear the word abuse. Well, my goodness, I'm really excited for the second half of this interview with Katie Trout. But for now, we have to bring this episode of Survivor Sanctuary to a close. But hey, join next Wednesday. We will have part two of this chat with Katie Trout. And there is a second half of her story that is actually pretty recent and it is amazing and Katie is a very very courageous person I'm just going to put it like that and you'll have to come back next week to find out all of the details and I hope to see you then in the meantime you know what to do join the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group we're having a great time interacting and hanging out there and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode or on any episode that you want to chat about Have a great one. I will catch you back here next time on Survivor Sanctuary.
Thanks for listening to Survivor Sanctuary with me, Kelly Downing. If you found value in today's podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Not only will it put a big smile on my face, more importantly, your reviews will help make it easier for other survivors and survivor advocates to find this podcast. Also, make sure you subscribe to Survivor Sanctuary wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can also join the conversation in our Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. And for exclusive content, be sure to visit SurvivorSanctuary.com. Join me next time for another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. See you then.